Well, thank you all for coming this morning. Uh, today we are joined by uh, Associate Professor of History, Dr. Eric Allen Hall from Northern Illinois University. Uh, he earned his PhD at Purdue University, uh, and his first book, which is available uh, in the library here to, to check out, uh, is on Arthur Ashe and the uh, fascinating intersections between uh, race and sport uh, in, in America in the 20th century. Uh, today, his talk is Red Waves, Race and Rebellion in Post-World War I Chicago. Uh, so let's give him a nice uh, round of applause to welcome him. Thank you. <laughs> All right, good morning. Can you guys hear me okay? How many of you are in... Professor Fulton's class. Do you like him? Is he a good guy? How many you get an extra credit for being here? I'm, I'm going to try my best not to make this horrible for you. All right. Okay. Um, so I am uh, from Northern Illinois University. I teach courses in 20th century pop culture, uh, social history, specifically kind of the intersection between sports and race. So I, I'm, I'm more of a sports historian than anything else, but I do have a field in African American history. Uh, and I grew up near the south side of Chicago. So I, I have some kind of background on, on this, right? Um, so what I want to do today is talk about the 1919 Chicago race riots and kind of dig into it, right? Um, I want to talk about kind of the causes of, of the riots, right, from a larger perspective. And then I want to get into kind of some of the, the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts of actually what happened in Chicago in 1919. And then talk a little bit at the end about sort of the legacies of it, what we can learn from it, how Chicago was basically transformed uh, by these race riots. Okay, um, so I want to kind of start big and kind of work my way down. All right, there we go. Okay, um, I want to start by talking about Chicago in 1919. Right, if you're a tourist, if you're a visitor, if you're an alien from another planet coming to Chicago in 1919. Uh, and you drop into the loop, you're going to see some really cool stuff, right? You're going to see buildings, you're going to see the L train, you're going to see the Woolworth skyscraper, which at the time was the tallest building uh, in the United States. Uh, in 1919, Chicago is the country's second largest city. Uh, behind where? New York, right? Um, there were 2.7 million people, which was up 500,000 people in a decade. So Chicago was this growing, expanding, sort of, sort of international kind of city in 1919, right? It, it, it really had grown. Um, but it's sort of, it's kind of tied into this gilded age idea. If something's gilded, what is that? Does anybody know? What's that? In the Boston Celtics hat. Right. Okay, so if you're looking to buy somebody a ring that, you know, a little glitzy on the outside, but you only want to pay 20 bucks, it's not so good on the inside, right? Chicago's kind of like that. You fly over it, buildings, there's the L train, there's all this kind of cool stuff, shopping on Michigan Avenue. But if you dig down deep into some of the neighborhoods, you're going to find sort of uh, squalor, right? You're going to find dirty tenements. Uh, you're going to find sooty factories. You're going to find foul-smelling slaughterhouses. Uh, you're going to find people really kind of struggling, right? And many of whom are, are immigrants who had uh, come to Chicago not that long before, okay? Um, I want to talk a little bit about immigration, right? This is going to be kind of the one, one of the big factors that would eventually lead to the riots, is the mass amount of immigration to Chicago um, in the years preceding 1919, okay? In Chicago in 1919, 30% of those people who lived in the city were foreign-born. Okay? Three out of every 10 people in Chicago in 1919 were not born in the United States. They had come to the United States from places all over the world. Okay? But more specifically, in kind of the last um, 30 years of the 19th century, they tended to come from places uh, centrally, or excuse me, uh, southern Europe, 
uh, and Eastern Europe, okay, places like Italy, places like uh, the Baltic states, places like, you know, Russia, places like Poland, okay. Um, and so you had this mass amount of immigration during the Gilded Age. It really kind of dwarfs anything that we're seeing now. So you have people coming to the United States in search of jobs, in search of opportunity, in search of all these things, which is great for people to make more money and, and, and uh, uplift their lives. Uh, but it's also difficult when you're, you're crowding into kind of neighborhoods and kind of trying to compete alongside other people. Um, so there's a variety of things that kind of divide these uh, new immigrants in the late 19th century, right? Um, not everybody spoke the same languages, okay? So it was not uncommon to go into a neighborhood in Chicago and not hear a lick of English, okay? People were divided based on religion, okay? Uh, people divided based on educational levels, right? So a lot of immigrants coming in the late 19th century didn't have the same kind of education levels that folks had who came in the first part of the 19th century or the last part of the 18th century, right? People coming semi-literate, illiterate, okay? And of course, race and ethnicity divides people as well, okay? Uh, whereas today, we tend to see a lot of people as quote-unquote white people, right? In the late 19th century, uh, if you were Irish, that was very, very different than being Italian, than being Polish, than being something else. Okay, so people were divided along these lines, and a lot of the neighborhoods were made up of people from, from just sort of that ethnicity, right? So there were Irish neighborhoods that, that were right next to the, the quote-unquote black neighborhoods of Chicago at the time. Okay, so immigration is a big factor kind of shaping all of this, okay? Um, on top of that, all right, you had a, a large number of kind of ethnic street gangs, white ethnic street gangs, okay, in Chicago in the late 19th century. Um, bands of sort of Irish people, Italian people, uh, et cetera. And the police tended to be a little bit too cozy with some of those gangs, okay? Um, many of the police in the South Side of Chicago were of Irish background and were not as maybe interested in, in, in laying the hammer down on a group of uh, an Irish gang as they were maybe on a black gang, okay? So there was always this idea, even before the riots, that the police were simply too cozy with some of those gangs, some of those people that were committing those crimes, okay? Um, this is a car, can you read this cartoon? Or is it too, uh, too much for you? Too little? A little too little? All right, so it's basically, there's a person in the bottom right there, <coughs> excuse me, who's holding up all these people, right? And they're all kind of saying, this isn't our first time being held up, we're used to this. We, we've been dealing with crime for years and years and years. Okay, the, some of them don't even blink. You know, go down to the next corner, maybe you'll find somebody that has some money. Okay, two things about kind of this. Number one, crime in Chicago before the riots is really rampant. Okay, it's not uncommon for crimes to happen really throughout the city. Okay, petty thefts, burglaries, pickpockets, uh, all the way up to more violent offenses. All right, so it's not as if the riots happen and all of a sudden there's all this violence and none of that existed before. Chicago was a tough place to live before that as well. Um, so that's sort of one aspect of, of this kind of cartoon. The second aspect is that 1919 is one year after what? Or actually less than a year after what? What big event? Yes, World War I, right? 1914 to 1918, okay? So 1919 is a year in which soldiers are coming home from overseas, black and white, Okay, they're coming back into neighborhoods, they're coming back into jobs that have been kind of filled, 
right? Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a time in which also there's this big recession. There's, there's a post-war recession. So the economy is rough. So you're coming back home after fighting for your country, okay? And there's no guarantee that there's going to be a job there. In fact, it's very difficult to find a job. That is going to create problems as well, okay? So that's sort of the immigration angle, okay? Lots of people coming to Chicago, living in tight quarters, living amongst each other, but kind of working together in some ways, and that kind of creates some tension, okay? Second thing, so if immigration is number one, right? Second is something called the Great Migration. Who's heard that term before? Great migration, right? Great migration refers to the movement of hundreds of thousands uh, of African Americans from the rural South to the urban North between World War I and World War II. Okay, so beginning in about kind of 1915, you start to see this migration of Southern blacks into the urban North, okay? Um, why would Southern blacks be leaving the South? Racism, right? Jim Crow, right? Um, the violence of the South, okay? So there's a push factor. There's something pushing folks out of the South, right? What's pulling them north? Why come to north? You're not gonna come for the weather. Okay, industry, jobs, opportunity. Okay, that's cited as the number one factor overwhelmingly when, when, when folks are asked why, why the migration because of economic opportunity. Chance for better jobs, higher paying jobs, that are more likely to support your families, right? Um, the problem is sort of racism comes right along with that. Okay, whereas racism in the North may not be as overt, it, it is there nonetheless. It is structurally there. Okay, there may not be legalized segregation, but there are informal, there's informal segregation. I'm gonna talk about that in a second when we actually get to the riots themselves, okay? So this is a map just showing kind of where folks tended to migrate. They migrated to um, mostly kind of industrial cities, Gary, Indiana, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, okay, Chicago, um, places with industry where you could work in meatpacking, in, in steel, in, in um, uh, a variety of other kind of uh, industries, okay? <coughs> Sorry, I have a cold. Um, one of the leading kind of newspapers that, that helped with this recruitment was the Chicago Defender, right here in Chicago. Okay, and the Chicago Defender, it, it, as you might know, was kind of the New York Times um, in, in a way, in that it went everywhere. It went on the trains, porters took it with them, and it ended up in cities throughout the United States. And there would be these advertisements that would, would tell folks, you know, you, do you need a job? Do you want to flee where you're at? Are you looking for more opportunity? Come to Chicago, and, and there's opportunity there. You know, or when you get to Chicago, contact the Urban League, and we'll help you get settled. We'll help you get set up. So there's this kind of recruitment as well, okay? So great migration, immigration. I want to talk a little bit about industry, specifically unions, okay, and the labor force, labor markets, okay? The vast majority of black workers in Chicago in 1919 were not part of unions. They were not unionized. Okay, the vast majority of workers in Chicago in 1919 were not unionized. The majority of white workers, on the other hand, ethnic white workers, were unionized. Okay, so you had this sort of the, this divide between union and not union, and that kind of creates uh, some some tension as well. Okay, 
what industry would often do, what, what sort of the, the people who own the factories, the people who manage the factories, the, the people in charge with the money, what they would often do is bring in black workers to break up union efforts. Okay, so let's say we're all gonna, we're all gonna unionize, right? We got union, we're spreading union literature, we're setting up a union, we know we're gonna do it. What the company might do is bring in a bunch of black workers who are not gonna be part of that union to undercut that union effort. Basically making the point clear, if you unionize, we're gonna replace you with black workers. Okay, so who are you mad at? Who? You end up being sort of mad at the black workers, right? You know, I mean, you're mad, you're mad at industry too, but you direct your animus as well as the people coming in to take your jobs, people who are going through the picket lines, that sort of thing. So it, that also creates tension between two groups, okay? Um, Let's talk about this for a second, okay? Um, if you were black in Chicago in 1919, okay, there were limited places where you could live, all right? One of the ways to sort of keep African Americans in particular areas was something called racial covenants. Has anybody ever heard that before? A racial covenant is, is something you sign in a contract when you buy a house. Right? And the contract says something to the effect of, I, I, Eric Hall, am buying this house. Okay? I will not legally, I'm not legally able to rent this house, sell this house, sublet this house to a person who is not of the Caucasian race. Okay? So I would buy a house and then I'm not allowed to sell that to an African American. And there were, th there were parts of Chicago, and this is kind of a, a map that shows it, and the, the area with kind of the, the thing that looks like one of those things you scan at the supermarket uh, is the area that had racial covenants, okay? Where if you're black, even if you're middle class, if you're upper class, if you've got a ton of money in the war, if you've got you know, LeBron James money, you still can't move into those neighborhoods because of the covenants, right? So that's sort of one thing. The second thing was something called home associations. So white folks would get together in their communities, they would form these home associations that would establish all these rules for living in those particular areas, right? And they would be a, a law that would be kind of designed particularly to keep people of color out. They wouldn't say that necessarily on its face, but there would be sort of subtle things to, to keep people out, okay? The third thing uh, was simple violence, okay? There was a guy named Ossian Sweet, moved into a house in Detroit in the 1920s, I believe, right? He's met with a, a welcoming present a few days in, which is a, a brick through his window with a note saying what? You might want to get out, of, you might want to move before this brick becomes a bomb, before this brick becomes a bullet, okay? So there are all kinds of ways. So if you have to live in this particular area, if you have one area that you're sort of confined to, what ends up happening is landlords inflate the prices of that area because they know that you don't have, they don't have competition. So, so the prices, that African Americans paid on the south side of Chicago were much, much higher than they would normally be. Okay, they played, paid inf inf absolutely inflated prices. Okay. Does it make sense how this is causing trouble before this riot even starts? Right? I mean, think about it in terms of a house. Right? If you take a house and you just sort of light a match and you just toss it right, into a random part of the house, there's probably not a great chance that your house is going to go up in flames, or at least not immediately, before somebody can come and put it out. If you instead douse the house with gasoline, you put all kinds of flammable materials in there, and then you light the house, it's going to blow, right? It may even blow if somebody's smoking outside and throws a cigarette butt on it, okay? The point with sort of all this stuff is, is the house has gasoline on it in 1919, 
it's only a matter of time, really, before something is going to happen, whether it's what I'm going to talk about in a second or something else. It's ready to blow. And in fact, it did blow in many places throughout the United States. Okay. All right, let's talk about this guy for a second. Okay, let's bring some people into the conversation. This is William Big Bill Thompson. He is the mayor of Chicago in 1919. All right. He is a Republican. The Republicans back then are very different than the Republicans today. You've talked about that, right? That the parties are not the same that they are now. Big Bill Thompson back then um, drew support from, from what we call progressives, okay, people who wanted kind of strong government, more um, the government to have a bigger hand in the economy and in life. And he also drew support from black voters because black voters could vote in the North. That was a big difference in the South. In the South, in some places, you'd have 40% of people in uh, Selma, for instance, Selma, Alabama, 40% of the population is black, yet only 0.5% you know, of them are voting. Okay? In Chicago, black people voted, and they voted for Bill Thompson. Okay? Um, the governor of Illinois during this is a guy named Frank Loudon, or Loden. Okay? He is also a Republican. He's a little bit different, though. All right, I'm not going to get into the intricacies of these guys' platforms, but they, uh, suffice it to say they're not exactly best of friends. Okay? Because they both want to do something that's going to happen in 1920. Anybody know what's going to happen in 1920? It's the same thing that's going to happen in 2020. This is a presidential election year. Okay? Both Loudon and Thompson want to run for president. Okay, so every decision they make in these riots is going to be based on the idea of, is this going to make me look better for the presidency or not? Okay, I don't want to make a mistake here. And in turn, they're, they're both going to make mistakes, right, because of that. Um, so both of these are Republicans. Democrats, on the other hand, at the time, tended to be the party of kind of white ethnics. So if you were Irish, huge Irish population in Chicago, if you were Italian, okay, if you were Polish, um, you tended to vote. Democrat, and, and those, were th those were sort of the voters that made up the Democratic Party, okay? So that's how the parties were sort of, sort of divided, okay? All right, and there's the two of them pretending like they like each other or maybe not. I don't know. One of the left was a little Harrison Fordy to me, perhaps, but all right. Now, I just want to talk about a few other things that are going on in Chicago at the time. Okay, the race riots are one thing, right? There's a hell of a lot going on in Chicago in 1919. All right, a lot of things going on in Chicago, and actually a lot of things going on within a very short period of time. Just seven or so days before the Chicago race riots, this blimp thing, the Wingfoot Air Express, cash, uh, clash, uh, crashes into the Chicago Stock Exchange. A blimp crashes into the city, okay, in 1919. So that's a problem in terms of resources, in terms of uh, you know, PR, in terms of everything. Okay, so th this is a bad in and of itself. Also, 1919 is the, is the year that the Chicago White Sox are having a World Series-ish kind of seat. Have you heard of this team before, the White Sox? Yeah, you have. Who was the best player? Shoeless Joe Jackson, right? This was the season in which eight players of the Chicago White Sox conspired to lose the World Series for money. They lost the World Series on purpose for money. Okay, that's all going to come out later, and the White Sox are going to be on a long road trip when the riots happen. They're going to use Comiskey Park as a, as a staging ground, or whatever they call it now. What is it called now? What it guaranteed, okay, whatever. The, what it, when it used to be called Comiskey Park. Okay, so this is going on too. 
Okay? The Chicago race riots are also part of what, what we call Red Summer, which was a series of, of rebellions and disturbances uh, uh, re revolving around race throughout the United States in 1919. Okay? There are riots in all of these places and, and actions in these places where you see like the little red, uh, fire thingy. Okay? Um, so this is not just Chicago. This is everywhere. This should give the, the government and everybody in the United States a, a, a clue that something's going on here. Something's problematic that's not just in Chicago, that's everywhere. Okay. And the problem is recession. The problem is um, s sort of conflict between um, white people and black people for jobs, for opportunities, for access, et cetera. Okay. So just to give you an idea what the – now Chicago was, I think, arguably the worst of any of these race riots. Right? There, there isn't going to be a one that's not nearly as bad as Chicago. Okay. All right. Let's get to what sparks <coughs> the riots, okay? This is the, this is the match that we're going to throw on the gasoline, okay? What's the spark, okay? Um, and I'll, I'll start by kind of telling a little bit of a story here, and then we'll kind of get into some of the, the specifics of, of the, the riots themselves, okay? Take yourself back July 27th, Chicago. What's it like in late July in Chicago? Pretty hot, right? Nin upper 90s, July 27th. Okay, this is before air conditioning. Can't turn on your air conditioner. You can't go in real cool. Okay, upper 90s, Sunday, July 27th. Chicagoans, black, white, flood to the beach, to the different beaches in Chicago. Okay, at the time, Chicago's beaches were informally segregated. Okay, there wasn't a law saying this is your beach, this is your beach, but they they were informally segregated. If you were black, you knew that you went to the 29th Street Beach, or excuse me, the 25th Street Beach. If you were white, you went either to the 29th Street Beach all the way down to the Indiana border, okay? Though that, that is where sort of you went, and this is a cartoon, right? The color line has reached the north, okay? In reality, that rope didn't exist, right? But if you were black and you ended up wading into the white area, you could expect to be attacked. That's just something that was sort of understood, right? All right, <clears throat> so on that morning, five black teenagers, five black teenagers, two brothers, Charles and Lawrence Williams, another man named Paul Williams, unrelated, and a guy named John Turner Harris leave their homes in the Black Belt and head for the beach. Okay, in order to do that, they have to cross an Irish neighborhood where they've had problems in the past. All right, so they very quickly get through there, um, and they end up in the beach. And the area that they choose to sort of swim in or wade in is this area between the 25th Street Beach, which is the Black Beach with a black lifeguard, and the 29th Street Beach, which is the, the White Beach. They go to this kind of area in the middle where there's factories behind it, and, and they, they create this sort of raft based on logs, and they sit on it, and they sort of wade out. Okay? None of them can swim that well either is the other sort of significant part of this. Okay? Eventually what happens is they start to drift toward the 29th Street Beach. Okay, and they come into sort of contact with a white person who's standing on a bunch of rocks who starts throwing, throwing stones. Okay? At first, the, 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 the teenager's sort of dodging the rocks, right? Uh, going into the water to avoid being hit. But then eventually, this young man, Eugene Williams, gets hit with a rock. Okay? And he falls into the water. He cannot swim. Okay? And, and he, he essentially drowns. Okay? He's, rocks hit, hits him thrown by a white man on the, on the rocks, falls, 
he drowns. Okay. Um, immediately after this, the other teenagers go to the lifeguard at the 29th Street Be or 25th Street Beach, and they they say, "Look, this has happened. He's in the water. We, th there was a rock thrown from somebody on the other beach." So a bunch of people, a bunch of African Americans, go to the 29th Street Beach, and they say, "This is what happened. This person is the one who threw the rock. We know it was this guy." Okay, the guy they point to is a guy named George Stauber. We, we know he did it, okay? The police officer on the scene is a white police officer named Daniel Callahan. What do you know by that last name? Irish, okay? <clears throat> he refuses to arrest the culprit, even though there are ID, uh, people IDing. He refuses to detain or arrest the culprit. And in fact, he arrests another guy, another black man, based on something somebody else had said, okay? So at this point, tensions are starting to get a little bit more heated. Things are starting to uh, pile up, right? More people start to show up. And eventually what happens is some people start to hurry back into the neighborhoods. And they start report, reporting what had happened at the beach, okay? Some of that is, is fact, and some of it is going to be rumor. Okay, some people are running back saying, this happened at the beach. Uh, and a bunch of black people are going into a factory and they're amassing weapons and they're going to attack us all. Okay, there's these rumors that are beginning to kind of float as well. And it kind of has this snowball effect to it. It's sort of, it's sort of getting out of control quickly. Okay, this is a picture of the 29th Street Beach uh, after the drowning of Eugene Williams. And you can see people kind of milling about, leaving, gathered there. Okay. Um, so you have this sort of uh, th th this sort of gathering, right? Okay. This is an old map of the Chicago riot. This probably doesn't tell you anything, does it? Because it's like a million years old. We'll use this one instead. Okay. This is a map done by the Chicago 1919 Confronting the Race Riots Project with the Newberry Library. It's an outstanding resource. I mean, if you go to this online, you can actually zoom in. You can click on any of these things. There's some pictures there where, where it kind of tells you whether there was a skirmish there, whether there was a death there, et cetera. The, the drowning took place here, okay? And then the violence is going to kind of spread to parts of the south side of Chicago, into the Black Belt and into other neighborhoods as well, okay? From 9 p.m. on Sunday, 9 p.m. on Sunday to 3 a.m. on Monday, okay, overnight, 27 blacks will be beaten, 7 will be stabbed, and four will be shot by white, white gangs on the south side. Okay, so what, what, what ends up sort of happening is you get groups of sort of white ethnic gangs that start roaming the south side of Chicago looking for anybody dark-skinned that they can attack. Okay? Just, you know, they'll see people getting off a streetcar and they'll, they'll attack that person. They'll see somebody walking and they'll attack that person. Okay? There are also groups of black gangs that in the black belt themselves, when they see white people, w will perceive them as a threat and attack them as well, okay? Now the violence overwhelmingly is white against black, right? Um, but there are other examples of the, there are some examples of, you know, a white person who lives like on the border of the black belt who ends up uh, uh, being beaten uh, simply because they're associated with, with somebody else, okay? Um, <coughs> for the most part, the, the white ethnic gangs kind of put aside all their differences, you know, Italian, Irish, whatever, and they sort of came together in their pursuit of, um, of black people at that time, okay? Now, 
Let's talk about the police force for a second, right? Okay? And this is probably going to shock you, and I'm being sarcastic here, okay? Only 200, 200, 200 of the Chicago Police Department's officers, 200 of the Chicago Police Department's officers were black out of 3,800 officers at the time. Okay, so there's 3,800 officers on the payroll of the Chicago Police Department, only 200 of them are black, which means overwhelmingly when people of color on the south side come into contact with a, an, uh, a law enforcement official, they're going to be white. And more likely than not, they're going to be Irish. Okay? Um, there are many instances based on eyewitness accounts where um, groups of white people are attacking a black person, a cop comes on the scene, isn't very quick to break it up, lets it kind of go for a while, um, or simply just kind of moves on. Okay, so that, that the idea of kind of representation, right, that a community should match its police department, right? So if a community is 50% black, the police department should be about 50% black. Okay, it does not uh, factor in here, okay? Let's talk about the scene here. What, what does this sort of look like, okay? Um, by Monday and Tuesday of, of the riots, streets are barricaded, okay? Uh, street lights have been shot out. Okay, not, not by the police, but by, by, by local people. Why do you shoot out a street light? So people can't see you, right? Isn't that what Batman does every time he goes in somewhere? Shoot the street lights so you can operate in secrecy? Okay, street lights shot out. Um, public transit is shut down. The trains and streetcars are like, we're not going there. Okay, so it means if you've got to go to work, how do you get there? Take an Uber? You walk, Okay or Lyft or whatever, whatever else, okay. Um, it's not uncommon, too, to go, in, to, to go into neighborhoods and, and have snipers on the rooftops, have people shooting from alleys, okay. This is sort of dangerous, dangerous territory, okay. <clears throat> All right, how am I doing on time here? I got 15-ish minutes? Okay. All right. Um, now, to make matters worse, okay, to make matters worse, at the same time that all of this is happening, the transit unions are in a contract with negotiation with the city of Chicago. Okay, so the transit workers are working on a contract with the city of Chicago. They're offered a proposal. They reject that proposal on Tuesday, and they go on strike. Okay, so not only do you have this sort of racial conflagration on the south side of Chicago, but now you have transit workers who've also walked off the job. And so you cannot take the train anywhere. Okay, that's not an option for you. Um, <clears throat> Armor meatpacking, okay, the Armor Packing Plant. All right, there are 1,500 black employees at Armor's Packing Plant. Okay, but in order to get to the Armor Plant, in order to get to the back of the Yards District, you have to walk across neighborhoods that are outside of the Black Belt. Okay, on Tuesday, only 19 of 1,500 black workers show up at Armor. Nin uh, 19 out of 1,500 workers show up. Okay. Um, additionally, all right, with um, 2,800 uh, of the cities, approximately 3,000 police, including a few other officers from other jurisdictions that have kind of come in, the vast majority of uh, the police officers are, are in the south side of Chicago dealing with kind of riot control, right? So what ends up happening is people begin kind of attacking black people in the loop and robbing black people in the loop. So now you have a problem in kind of the central business district as well as the south side. 
All right, so this kind of expands. Okay, and these are just some images of uh, some of the stuff that's going on. This is a picture of uh, a white gang that's attacking um, or, or chasing down um, an African American to attack. Right? It looks like there may even be a, a police officer there. May may or may not be. Okay. This is a picture of um, sort of a, a group of people who had just finished looting a house. What do you, what do you see by looking at their expressions? They're what? They seem to be pretty happy, right? They're smiling. They're, they're almost sort of taking, they're, they're almost posing, right, for the picture. They're, they don't seem to be ashamed this is happening or they've just committed a crime or they're trying to cover their faces or, or anything like that. Um, what I always tell students when I show images, not just of this, but of you know, the term lynching has been in the news the last couple days, if you're aware of this, okay? What you do, what's, obviously you see images and there's sort of what's in the front and that's what kind of captures people's attention. But I always tell students, look in the background, look at see people's faces, look at how they're reacting, look how they're comfortable with things that are going on. Look at how they're, they're, they don't worry a bit that they've just committed a crime, okay? Because they know that the sort of system is there to protect them. Okay, here's another picture of uh, a house being looted. Okay, people sort of uh, posing again. And a picture of the front of the house following an episode. And this is a, a police kind of uh, coming upon uh, somebody who just been beaten by uh, a, a gang. Okay, and this is the this is the strike. We just talked about that. Okay. All right. Now take a step back for a second. All hell has broken loose. Okay. What's the mayor doing? What's the governor doing? Okay. The mayor has dispatched his his police force down there. Okay. But the mayor does not want to ask the governor for help. He does not want to ask the governor to send in National Guard, even though the National Guard is basically in Chicago, ready to go. He doesn't want to send them in because he doesn't want to look weak, and he doesn't want to make Loden look good. So he refuses to send them in. Okay? Loden says, if you want them, you've got to ask for them. Thompson says, well, you could just send them. You don't even have to ask me. Just go ahead and do it. And Thompson's like, no, you really got to ask me to do it. And so that's where it stands for the majority of, of the time that this is going on. Neither one will do anything. The Wilson administration, the federal government, does essentially nothing while all this is going on. Okay, so this, so could, have the, could this have been sort of stopped earlier probably had National Guard been there? But they didn't send them in. Okay. Now, <clears throat> while this is going on, okay, numbers of black leaders throughout Chicago, okay, um, gather at the Olivet Baptist Church in Chicago. That's a picture of what it, what it would look like in and around 1919. Okay, that's a look at how big it is on the inside. Okay. Um, they gather alongside members of the NAACP uh, and the Urban League to sort of come up with you know, a position paper to, to speak to what's happening, to sort of ask the governor, to ask the mayor, what is going on here? Okay. Um, and the position paper essentially argues that officers and the police had, had kind of failed to protect um, black people in the black belt and throughout Chicago, that the police hadn't done enough, okay, that they needed more of a presence there and more, more of a sort of a neutral presence, okay, in addition to talking about other things like institutionalized racism, segregation, uh, and, and so on, okay. Um, so at this point, right, by Tuesday, by Wednesday, um, People living in the Black Belt are running out of food, 
okay? Um, they are running out of supplies. Police stations are crowded with people, okay? If you are a delivery driver who's trying to get food and supplies into that area, there is a decent chance you're going to be mobbed or robbed, okay, or pushed outside, okay? So at 9.30 p.m. finally, at 9.30 p.m. finally, uh, Thompson requests military aid from the governor's office, okay? Doesn't declare martial law, but he does ask for the military aid to come in. So the military aid comes in, um, and this is kind of what uh, sort of stops the riots, what slows it down, okay? Um, <coughs> the National Guard, despite the fact that the National Guard had not been particularly helpful in places like East St. Louis two years earlier, this group of soldiers uh, were much more disciplined, um, treated uh, blacks and whites relatively equally in terms of how, what they kind of uh, were, were up to and went about. Um, so th this is kind of what, what stops things, right? This is a picture of a uh, National Guard uh, standing guard, essentially outside of Ogden's Cafe. It says Ogden's Cafe is reopened, okay? And you could see that the, the soldiers would carry kind of huge guns with bayonets on the end of them and were, were well trained in crowd control and, and so on. This is a group of uh, police officers escorting a black man outside of his house, um, house who'd just been looted and destroyed, taking a chest with his valuables, the family's valuables outside, and they were gonna escort that person to a different place. And again, it, would you get an idea what the group of National Guard soldiers looked like there with bayonets in hand, um, sort of being involved in this. Newspapers. Okay, come out a few days after this. A lot of times in Chicago and in other places, newspapers were weeklies. They didn't come out every single day. They would come out once a week. And what, what's published in these newspapers, both in black newspapers and in, in predominantly white mainstream newspapers, was information about the riots, but also a lot of rumors as well. A lot of things that turned out to not be true at all. A lot of information that was sort of blown out of proportion that created more and more tension among folks. Okay. Um, in total, Okay, 38 people will die in the riots, 38 people. Okay, 38 dead, including 23 blacks and 15 whites. 23 blacks, 15 whites. Okay, 537 people will be seriously wounded, okay, including 342 blacks, 178 whites, and 17 whose race was considered unknown. Okay. 2,000 homes and apartments damaged, and the riots cost millions and millions of dollars. I mean, this was a, it took years and years to kind of repair these neighborhoods, okay? Um, so the question, what happens after this, right? After, after these situations happen, typically what happens throughout the, United, throughout the United States history in the 20th century is you get these commissions that are formed. Commissions consisting of 10-ish people, 15 people that come together from different areas of expertise, and they try to figure out what happened, right? How, they try to diagnose what, what went wrong here, okay? And that's exactly what happens in Chicago. You have this commission that, that is put together kind of what happened, and what do they find? They find that the riot is caused by everything that I talked about, okay? It's caused by ethnic tension. It's caused by racism. It's caused by structural inequality, okay? Um, it, it, it's caused by a poor relationship between police and the community. Does this need to sound familiar? 
the things that may have happened in the last five years or so, right? Poor relationship between uh, predominantly white officers and predominantly black community, right? Unemployment, substandard housing, okay? Bad conditions. Now, every one of these situations are different, right? They all have their sort of unique counterparts, but at the core, they, they're very similar in many ways. And that's something, whether you're talking about East St. Louis in 1917, whether you're talking about Watts, whether you're talking about LA 92, or whether you're talking about uh, Baltimore, Ferguson, uh, or wherever, all right? You're gonna find very similar sort of, sort of causes to that, okay? Now, one other thing I wanna mention here, and usually when I say that, that's when people start packing up, right? And with my classes, that's like the cue that it's over. Turn it off. I'm getting there, okay? Um, white commentators were generally horrified by the riots, horrified by the violence, and tended to blame um, some white groups blamed, blamed some of the white people for the problems, but they tended to kind of blame the black people for the problems, right? For instance, when the, um, when the city government started charging people for the riots, they, they would overwhelmingly bringing in black people to the grand jury, right? They were overwhelmingly uh, flooding juries, or excuse me, flooding the offices with, with black people. And at one point, the judges like, these black people were not fighting among, they were not rioting themselves amongst themselves. There are other people here that we start to need, we need to see some of those people too, because this doesn't make any sense, okay? Um, however, black commentators, particularly people um, writing for the newspapers, people writing um, books and memoirs and pamphlets later, are certainly horrified by the violence, but, the, but, but something is different about this in 1919. They express sort of thrill in some ways that black people fought back, okay? that this wasn't a case in which white mobs were beating black people and they were turning the other cheek or they weren't fighting back. Okay, this is a case where you had groups of, of, of black people who were armed, who were fighting back. Okay, many of them uh, had, had returned from fighting overseas, right? You just spent all this time fighting in Europe, fighting for democracy, fighting for freedom, fighting for all those things that we love in this country, right? And then you come back to Chicago and you're gonna get beat, beat over the head by a white person in your own neighborhood? People are saying, hell no. Right, we're not gonna do that. So th that, this begins sort of a period of militancy where you see people kind of fighting back, okay? Lastly, <clears throat> I wanna mention just a few, you know, I know you have tons of free time with your working and your, your school and your what, everything else that's going on, right? And, and the, the Instagram and all that. But, okay, these are some outstanding books that deal with the Chicago race riots. Um, the one on the left is about um, Red Summer in 1919. Um, this one on the right is a book specifically about Chicago. It's not that old. Uh, it's by Gary Christ. It's called City of Scoundrels. It deals with kind of every crazy thing that's going on in Chicago. There's also um, a serial killer roaming around in Chicago at the time as well, to top it off, okay? Um, so that is an, if you're looking for sort of a, a beach read, there's obviously you're not going to the beach now, but later, um, that's a good for that. And the Tuttle book also deals with the riots of, of 1919. Um, and again, Chicago1919.org has all kinds of great maps, images, primary sources. If you need to write a paper on this at some point, you're looking for primary source materials, there's just absolutely loaded with things uh, on this as well. So that is what I have to say. I think, do you have five minutes left? I will take any questions you have about this or any other topic that I know anything about. Thank you. <clears throat> Anybody, you're like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Any questions? Yes, sir. So, events like this, just in general, red flag 
Yeah, I th so I think, I'll say this. I, I, the, the high school that I went, when I, when I was in high school, that, that was certainly true, right? Um, you tended to, to learn history in high school a lot of times from a top-down perspective. So you're learning about presidents, generals, military, economic history. You know, this president was president during this time. These were his big achievements and so on. And you tended to hear less about kind of social and cultural history a while. You didn't hear, tend to hear things about this. They might talk about 1919 being a crazy year, but instead they're talking about the Treaty of Versailles. They're talking about other things that are going on in Europe, right? They're talking about the presidential election. Um, Last year, I served in Northern Illinois as the director of secondary education teacher licensure, so I was in the high schools a lot. Um, and I'll say the teachers that I observed across multiple high schools now are doing a much better job about this, that are not only sort of just lecturing about this, but are actually kind of putting students in groups and, you know, you, know, you guys are going to deal with the, the strike part of 1919. You guys are going to deal with the race part of 1919, right? Um, you know, that said, I, I think some folks try to avoid kind of difficult topics in some ways. Um, and obviously race is a kind of difficult topic. It's, it's tough to talk about sometimes, right? Um, so I think that's kind of part of it for, for some faculty and some, some teachers. But I think people are doing a much better job than they have been in the past of covering things like this. Yes, sir. <coughs> Yeah, I, so I think, I think you talk about, it, about racism in the sense that the racism here is structural and it's institutional, right? That sort of um, factory owners, capitalists, in industrial, people in industry are creating this kind of racism where they know that they're going to pit folks against one another, right? So they know full well that bringing in black workers into a, into a, into a white factory is going to cause trouble, all right? Um, and so it, there's this, especially with northern history, there's this level of kind of structural racism to where you may on an individual level think it's about jobs, but, but in reality there's something kind of larger than that. So that's. Yes, sir, another faculty member asking a question when everybody wants to leave. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Right. I mean, so bef before all of this, right, if you were going to talk about the 1919 riots or anything in 1919, you were going to have a student project, students would have to go to the library, right, they'd have to check out physical books, they'd have to, you know, maybe interlibrary loan things, okay, that there wouldn't be this sort of wealth of, of stuff to look at, right. Nowadays, because there's, there's so many of these interactive maps and primary sources and um, pictures and images, it, it becomes so much easier for students. Um, 
particularly students that are sort of on time budgets, right? That you don't have a million years to go to the library and do all this extra research and track stuff down to be able to do these projects kind of rel relatively quickly. Um, so projects like these are great. The, the downside is there's so much on the internet and there's so much that you have to kind of siphon through as, as the accuracy of, of all it, right? Even within 1919, I saw pictures online where the descriptions didn't, didn't match the picture. I knew, I knew that that picture was from you know, the Tulsa riots and not from this one, right? So you, you have to be kind of careful about that. Um, but I always think that as, as a student, I mean, you, go, you guys like looking at things better than you just like hearing people tell you things or reading things. I mean, when you actually see it, it has a more visceral kind of impact on you than, than if you're just kind of, if you're reading about a lynching, that's one thing. If you see the pictures and you see what's happening, that really kind of, uh, you, you know, speaks to you, which is why, um, you know, it's important that the images that we see on TV today are the ones that kind of stick with us, not the, you know, we don't pay attention to institutional stuff that much, but we do pay attention when, you know, somebody is being beaten on, on camera, that sort of thing. So the images really kind of matter. All right, thank you all, appreciate it. Oh, can I say one more thing real quick? So I'm at Northern Illinois. I'm happy to stick around if you have any questions about NIU or the history department there or you wanna talk about that. 